Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area, and we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio, and we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food and that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We we just care very deeply about about you as a as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain and and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and and care about learning everything there is to learn about it and that's that's we're kindred spirits if it's something worth having in your kitchen you're going to find it at, at fairway and if there's somebody worth talking to about food you're going to find them on heritage radio and we will be supporting you guys for a long long time at fairway i'm your personal grocer steve jenkins fairway market Thanks so much, Steve, for coming in just to read that promo. That was really awesome. No, he didn't come in. That's pre-record, but Fairway is a very big sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, and we're very appreciative of them. And we love having Steve on as a guest at the main course. And this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are located in the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick. Our program today uh, is going to be focusing on agriculture Yes, agriculture, which is one of our four major themes, Katie. That's right. And I am one of your hosts, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime. Patrick Martins. So Roberta's just had a huge article in New York Magazine. So cool. We're going to try to be witty for the next eight minutes and uh, improvise a a 10-minute introduction before getting into our into our show but we're also going to talk about our show but we do want to say new york magazine did a beautiful two-page spread i think it was like in an issue called the most powerful people in new york yeah they didn't mean money powerful they just i guess meant cultural they meant cultural icons yeah absolutely and roberta's is definitely standing out as one of those cultural icons in brooklyn but you know one thing i was talking to brandon who's one of the owners here and he brought up an excellent point that had never dawned on me they get credit here at Roberta's for being a do-it-yourself empire. Yeah. And yet there's nothing do-it-yourself about them. It's about teamwork. It's about uh, people being experts in a certain thing and being tapped into for that expertise. And, you know, everyone, you know, doing their thing. And, and do-it-yourself is not necessarily the best word for a movement that relies on utter reliance on your fellow neighbor kind of thing. Well, but I think that what they mean by do-it-yourself is that you're not bringing in an outside contractor, you're not using uh, industrial-grade products, you know, prefabricated this or that. You're actually building things out from scratch uh, using recyclable materials or whatever comes to hand. And I think that that's the do-it-yourself aspect of it. The fact that it requires teamwork to actually make that work is, um, you know, the lenny up to the whole concept. But it's... That's a good point. It's just ironic that no one's doing it themselves in a do-it-yourself empire, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and we're going to be talking a lot about doing it yourself because it seems like restaurants, one of the main themes we're going to be talking about today is like distribution systems are horrible sometimes and some restaurants are bucking the system by just 
directly making their own distribution system that relies on no one else other than maybe a trucker that drives the stuff up from uh, New York State. That's right. Yeah. So, and restaurants that are trending more and more towards growing a lot of their own produce, at least, and some of them are trending towards even raising livestock at this point. I know that there's a, like, herb farm out in Seattle, for instance, raises a lot of its own livestock, and I'm sure other restaurants are doing the same when they when space permits. So It's um, an herb farm that raises livestock? <laughs> You know, the restaurant's called Herb Farm. I can't remember the name of the chef's last name. It's Keith something. He was a great guy. Um, but anyway, it's a terrific restaurant, and he's been doing this for about seven or eight years. So he's he's definitely out in the forefront of this whole whole movement of growing your own. So this show is going to be uh, our first guest in studio is Scott Boggs. No relation to Wade Boggs. We've covered that. Or Bill so Boggs. Don't ask that. Or Bill Boggs. Big Bo- Who is that? Bill Boggs. Wasn't he an actor? Hmm. Isn't he an actor? Yeah. So um, on, and Scott. he Scott is opening a <laughs> a restaurant. Scott's like, can I? He's like a horse wanting to be unleashed during the intro section. But he's going to come, <laughs> and we're going to talk about um, you know the Breslin restaurant, which yeah. is you know April Bloomfield, who by the way was in that same issue. Yes, she was really, the other food person. Yeah, she yeah. was the only other food person. It was a little bit of a weird photo of her, like. With all these knives around her, she looked kind of like an angel. How embarrassing! And her for halo her. was made of knives. <laughs> she loved it. She thought it was did great. She? Yeah, she did. Oh, good. Okay. Anyway, I would have been so, totally embarrassed, but you know, whatever. April has always been a trendsetter. I know she cooked at the River Cafe in in London. She cooked at Chez Panisse for a while too, didn't she? Take a stage there. I think she did. Yeah. Three months, six months. Yeah. So yeah. of course she opened the legendary Spotted Pig, where there's so few people that would have been able to deal with the politic of working with some of the co owners of that place which is you know bono and jay-z and mario and joe big egos big money yeah she cut through all that hype and and just produced honest kind of like pub food real true it was a real trendsetter she was like the first major gastro pub here she goes with the breslin now and now they're starting their own personal farm so we're going to talk about that which is which is awesome and then i'm really excited to there's this new book that just came out called calf CAFO, CAFO. It's which called stands CAFO, for Confined Area Feeding Operation. It's called the CAFO Reader, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories, and it was edited by Daniel Imhoff. Mm-hmm. And it's a series of essays and sort of, uh, you know, edited down um, articles about uh, industrial agriculture, industrial livestock farming. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of information here that... Um, for a meat geek like me was not new, but for somebody who is not familiar with Katie's uh, a butcher, an ex butcher, but always I'm, I'm once a, total a butcher, freaking always a butcher. Geek. I'm just a meat geek. Yeah. Just, let's just call a spade a spade. So I mean I spent a half an hour in Philadelphia discussing um, you know, the relative temperatures of hogs after slaughter with this guy and, mm. and the impact that it has on the meat. Like That's important. You have to get it to it's cool down huge. very quickly. Yes, or otherwise you have water. this glycolization and all PHP, these other Yeah. See Patrick too. Right. I'm just smart. I didn't really you know, all this stuff I just kinda got. But anyway, so this book, which is quite a lengthy tome and I have the advanced reader copy of it, so I don't. So there's have, no pictures in yours. No, but there's it's chalk up. It's a big. It's basically a big coffee table yeah. book format. It's really. I mean, the amount the of money that I went into producing this is quite extraordinary because was, of how harsh those pictures are. Well, I, I didn't even want to see the pictures because I mean the mental pictures of what you're seeing. The thing that I'm going to be interested in, we're going to have Dan Imhoff on as a um, the he's editor in of Sonoma this. or Napa or something. So he's going to be coming on to talk about the book, why he put it together, and um, how we got you know, the essays, of, how we got the pictures. I'm 
really interested. Yeah, the, because How did they get those pictures? Well, one of the most interesting essays in this book is about uh, the fact that there are these various laws on the books now from state to state about whether or not you can uh, take photographs mm-hmm. uh, within uh, slaughterhouses or, or feeding operations. If there should be lots. anything wrong with that. Well, and then there's uh, and then there's the whole issue of like when Oprah was sued by the Texas uh, National <sighs> Meat Producers or whatever it was for saying something bad about them. There are many states on the uh, that have laws on the books that prohibit uh, saying anything about agriculture that might be deleterious to the industry. So, well, I don't want to be an extremist here at all, but. The owners of these CAFO operations, if hell was invented for something, it was invented to punish people like this. And and if, if that is going to be in the next lifetime, then in this lifetime, I view it as one of the roles of the main course to bring these people to the table to change their ways. Because if they don't, they're going to burn in the deepest, most horrible part of hell for treating animals like this. And they don't have to. They could do better. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find out what they the could pale. do better because um, the fact is, you know, uh, this method of livestock husbandry, if you want to call it that, livestock. It's not husbanding. It's, not, anything. it's commercial livestock production. It's raising animals as if they were a commodity crop, as if they were fruits or vegetables. Yeah, exactly. And not curious, smart creatures. And um, and. The alternative to that is what, given the... A few cents more a pound. I mean, there's, it's and what got will happen to be then? dealt with. I mean, all of the environmental issues and everything that are outlined in this book so eloquently by the many writers who Michael have contributed Pond, to it. Yeah, I mean, you, you think to yourself, oh my God, how can we ever possibly even begin to start changing this? But there are things that we can think about doing. There are choices that people can make that don't cost a lot more money. And I think that, you know, and you and I have cheaper. brought this... Well, it's when you... Not when even you really before take the environment, into account, just pure the cost. I don't even care about the environmental, the the worker rights violations. I just don't think it's actually cheaper. As we always like to say on the show, a value meal at McDonald's, you know, if you get the fry, is like eight sixty. That's right. That's not that cheap. That's right. So, so um, I think we've hit the ten minute mark here. We'll take job. a short break, and we uh, we'll come right back with our first another guest, intro. Scott Boggs. Although from I think the we Breslin. lost Nat. <laughs> is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins. And um, our first guest today is Scott Boggs, who is coming to us from the Breslin. Scott, you run the farm for the Breslin, right? Starting a farm. Starting a farm. Yeah. So tell us, let's, let's hear, first of all, what's the philosophy behind actually starting your farm for a restaurant because it's kind of an expensive proposition isn't it it is it is i was actually the first culinary gardener for the french laundry 
No way! But you're like 12. I was I was <laughs> no, he's definitely not. a baby when I was back there. That was. Uh, Are you from California originally? Yeah, yeah. originally from Southern California. Uh-huh. Um, that was I think about six or seven years ago. Huh. Wow. And uh, that's Thomas Keller's yep. French Laundry, right? Which yep. is in, in, Napa. in Napa in the Napa Valley. Yeah. It opened about fifteen years ago, and they were or ten. It's been around. Oh, it's at least ten, isn't it, Scott? Started in ninety four. So, oh, okay. So then more like 15. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but the French Laundry was a restaurant It was called before the French Laundry, Thomas before Keller him. took it oh. over. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I... How did you get that gig? I was cooking there. Okay. I actually butchered at the French Laundry and, and, and worked on uh, cool. the meat station. Yeah, it was amazing. Before meat was cool. In, before meat was cool. It's a nourishing environment, meat was very uncool right? for a long time. Yeah. 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 Um, very nourishing environment uh incredible very uh they cultivated people very well there mm-hmm. um, so so tom keller is a good mentor yeah he's amazing mm-hmm. yeah that's great. he is amazing i mean the products that you get to work with i mean talking about properly raised animals that was my first foray into that so were they so you were butchering for them but they weren't growing their own livestock at no. that point and they no. don't now do they they don't no. But they may eventually, I bet. He, you know, he likes to work with uh, farmers to grow for him. I see. He doesn't really want to become... Stay the opinion. expert where you're an exactly. expert. Right? Exactly. As so Socrates I, taught you, Katie. That's... You know that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Me... <laughs> We, we we went way back, me and Socrates, yeah. No, but stay an expert. That's good, because, I mean, raising livestock, that's why they're farmers, right? Right, so. exactly. And I think that's why I ended up out here, was because April knew that, you know, she she wanted to really know where everything was coming from. Um, you know, I think you can lose touch being stuck in a kitchen. I think you can wake up one day and realize, this really isn't exactly what I want to be doing. Huh. You know, uh-huh. and I think you know she started off first by having full time foragers. We have a um, a full time person who goes to the the green markets. Who is that, Marissa? I met, I met a very nice girl who used to do that for her, Catherine. Somebody. Yes, and she's a sous yeah. chef at the Breslin now. Ah, yeah, she was great. She, uh, we met at a uh, Mangalisa pig event. <laughs> <laughs> in somebody's apartment on uh, Fifth Avenue. In fact, it was the guy who owned the. It was um, Moe's Fund Farm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you guys buy? For, did you end up buying from them? Moose Fund, no. Mo, I don't know. M O S E. I thought. Okay. We we actually just did a, a tasting with him last week. We are gonna start getting some from him. But you're you're, you're buying from Patrick, right? We do. Spotted Pig and Breslin does buy a lot from us. We made a, an agreement where, in return for free pig ears, the spotted pig uh, <laughs> buys all their pork from us, which has been great because they go through tons of shoulder, tons of hams, tons yeah. of heads, which are like you know items that we like to move for, absolutely for, a fair price. for sure. Yeah, I mean they're all part of the animal, so the you thing can't really is throw the mangalista. I just can't. Uh, just the prices per yeah. pound. I just know that it is not that much better than a Red Waddle or a Berkshire. It's a pretty or, tasty pig. I understand it's very tasty, but I mean, uh, what are these guys doing at Flying Pig Farm? It's not 40 times, it's not a $12 <coughs> a pound pig. I think it's probably should be closer to, I mean, just because of how high you price it doesn't mean it's that good. 
in a weird way. I mean, if we were like, oh, our red wattles are $16 a pound for the loin, people would be like, oh, it must be delicious. But it's probably very close to all the heritage breeds, you know. Of, With uh, a smaller loin, actually. Yeah. A tiny loin. <laughs> less yeah. yield. Yeah. Less yield. <laughs> way less yield. But they do make incredible hams, right? So, isn't yeah, that I mean, what people love them for? The, the thing is that they, they really are a charcuterie pig. Yeah. And that's what they were raised for in Europe. And mm-hmm. the problem is that, you know, people aren't willing to pay what it costs for charcuterie that comes off a pig like that. Mm. Although charcuterie does allow the chef, they because sometimes chefs pay very little for things that are eventually turned into charcuterie, but their portion cost is so fantastic because a little sliver of something ends up being sold for $18. Right, or, but I mean, oh, yeah. I think that's the thing. It's, you know, if you make a, a charcuterie plate and it's not your meal, it's not expensive. Right. I mean, the, well, the cost it can per, be. I mean, well, it's Salumeria sure. Rossi, which is in I my neighborhood, Cesare Casella's place. It's, it's about 17 or $18 for a selection of four to six. And you're getting probably in total maybe four or five ounces of meat on that plate. That's but, quite but a you, return. But wouldn't you rather oh, pay sure. that I mean, I'm and happy get an to, amazing product? Because it's very good, of course. Yeah. yeah, it's great. But, you know, my point is is that there's that's a nice bump up in terms of because it's found in a way it's found money although you make an investment in the time um that it takes to create products like that but you're also getting a huge bump in um in profit margin because you, typically you're using less you know less, less expensive a, less cuts expensive of meat. cuts yeah, yeah absolutely stuff that would normally go to waste like in an american family if you bought an entire pig you wouldn't know what the hell to do with half of that stuff sure so, but let's talk a little bit about the agricultural aspect yeah. of things. We're we're sort of straying off topic here. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> it's the frenet. No, it's not. It's just because it's fun to talk to somebody who really has been around the block a few times. So, <laughs> so then you came from French culinary. Give us a headline. I mean, uh, French laundry, and then. Uh, so then I started a farm in Napa for somebody. Okay. Um, so how did you get your farming knowledge? Did you go to school, agricultural school? No. You just learned by Se- doing self-taught and re- self-taught. You know, just That's how I am. Reading. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and. Trial and error. Lots of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or lots of error. How about that? <laughs> lots of error. Who no, was your mentor? Trials, did you read obviously. or did you just work on a farm you know, at the French Laundry? <clears throat> we leased a piece of land um, from a farmer that he had an amazing orchard. It was about an acre. It's called Jacobson Orchard in, in Yonville. Um, between him and Jeff Dawson, who's uh, a biodynamic guru in the Napa Valley, I... I'd say those those were my two biggest mentors. Do you farm biodynamically? No, no. I mean, I, I love a lot of the concepts of it, but oh, I, what yeah, does that so mean cool. exactly? You're tied to the seasons of the moon, like the passages of the moon. Is right. that right? As well as you have a closed um, environment is the, is the goal. So you have specific preparations that you do um, for the soil, exactly with with yeah. with the moons. Um, and then, uh, you know, everything that's you're putting into the land is staying there. It's not going anywhere else. Or, and it's not coming was, from someplace This else. was all developed by Rudolf Steiner, who was also... What a guy. I would have loved to He was to an amazing, him. absolutely amazing human would being. Would he be one of your top three to He was, with? you know, he was a good friend. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying... <laughs> no, I, I mean, of people I would like to meet, yeah, Rudolf Steiner yeah. would be up there. What a fa- His name keeps coming up Well, because the education, the Waldorf school system, the whole, you know, the whole... I mean, of, he was a philosopher. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. a farmer. No. Yeah. He wasn't a teacher. Right. I mean, he. I mean, I guess he was a teacher. You know, he was trying to teach. Well, 
Well, yeah. But he, I mean, he created this whole educational system, which exists to this day. Big time. I mean, yeah, he's big been time. The Steiner School on 79th Street. And, yep. you know, my daughter went to a Waldorf camp for two years up in the in the New Hampshire. I mean, So how did you hook stuff. up with uh, April then? I mean, uh, and, and decide to move to the East Coast to start a farm. You yeah, know, that's radical. I got connected with her from somebody who was working for her who came out for a couple months during one of the winters to see how she had a small garden here and so she wanted to see how it's done on a larger scale so Mm -hmm. she came out and then when she came back told april and ken about it and then they came out in the spring and saw everything and they just said this is what we want to do you're our guy i guess that's what they said so then they they made you an offer and and did Mm -hmm. they have a piece of land in mind already no no they didn't they said you know we you know they basically said we know nothing about farming Mm mm-hmm why don't you come out and let's find a piece of land and get started? Start small, just grow, grow slowly, and then. So, do you live on this farm? Oh no, I, I live in in Nolita. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because I was I looked you up. I looked up on the website to you know get a little information. Now it's it's called Oak Hill. It's in Oak Hill. Is that where your farm is? No. no. Okay. We're, we're in. Uh, Somebody else's where have farm. you been Sorry. researching? I, I was looking at the egg because they also have a farm. So. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we, um, it's actually pretty interesting. We, we were looking to buy a piece of land and looking and looking and looking and found a piece that was beautiful that just didn't work out. That was a farm. Um, and then we came across somebody who we know through, through Ken and his sister has a a farm upstate and she said, why don't you guys take, take a piece of, here's, here's 44 acres. Yeah. Wow. So did that's you worry that they were going to have unrealistic expectations as, you know, oh, absolutely. Uh, chefs in New York and they don't understand that agriculture works on its own? It's it's definitely, it was something in the back of my mind. Um, I made it very clear when they were out visiting that it takes time and it takes money and it takes a lot of people and everybody's got to be on the same page. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, they... They, they said, were supportive about yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. What were the biggest challenges you faced in getting the farm started? Like in terms of, you know, it takes a while to break ground and then get crops in and then actually harvest them. I'm, I mean, I'm putting our first crops in this week. Uh huh. <clears throat> so what are you going to grow? Very quick things: radishes, turnip, you know, Tokyo turnips, some some greens, some stuff that'll that'll do well through the the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's late. Yeah, really? I mean, it's really yeah. late to put. It's stuff almost in. you almost have to look to spring, right? Right, your first and that's you know, heads. we I, I had an acre tilled for this this fall, and then we tilled the forty four acres and planted a cover crop. Uh huh. Um, and then we'll I'll probably put in I'll probably put in three or four acres in the spring, and and uh, then animals. Do you work alone? Uh, I'll work alone in the, this fall, and then I'll have at least one other person in the spring. And uh, what was their driving force? Was it uh, traceability? Was it profit? Was it control? Control. I, I mean, that that's definitely the biggest thing. I think, um, you know, most chefs at, at this level, they they want things exactly how they want them. And well, how are you going to be able to guarantee that? Oh, you can't. Yeah. You can't. And, you know, I think that's what's great is that by having your own farm, you can bring the chefs up, work work with you you know for a day and they uh-huh. can realize what really goes into it and realize that it's not it's not a factory i mean you're talking about factory farming with animals i mean 
none of this stuff is a factory. Yeah. So, well, I, unless I it's think corn it's, or soybeans. Sure, but yeah. not not how we're growing. But not not sort of conventional produce right. that goes onto people's tables. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you go to Salinas Valley, and it's a factory. Yeah. So, um, how give are you us, gonna, Oh, sorry. Go well, ahead. I was just going to ask, when are you going to be able to supply enough for the restaurants? I mean, there's two, and then Never. there's going to be the. There's really? going to be a third. I mean, right? yeah, the the John John Dory. John I mean, there are certain things that that I won't be able to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, like of, pineapples. <laughs> I mean, we don't use that stuff, though. I mean, that's the beauty of it is that April is really... She's really tied to what's yeah. growable in the Northeast. Exactly. Um, Interesting. Good for But, her. you know, there's some things that we use a lot of. I mean, am I going to grow storage onions? Probably not. Right. So, you know, my thought is that going forward, I, I would rather work with the farmers that we've been using for years at the green market and say, you know, this is what we need. Uh-huh. Are you guys willing to grow it for us? You know, people who have the machinery and they're growing on a hundred acres. What my next question, uh, you know, before I interrupted Patrick was <laughs> how do you, how are you going to be able to process your vegetable? Cause it seems to me that it's like, it's one thing for a farm to grow, you know, X number of cases of lettuce, for instance, but Cleaning it and packing it and moving it is another entire business. Absolutely. And so let's let's chat a little bit about that because that feeds into the That's whole distribution. That's one of our big four, yeah. distribution. Yeah. I mean, that distribution for the farm in Napa was our biggest cost. Yeah. And the most difficult thing to get 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 right. Um, you know, I'll set up I'll set up a, a processing area up at the farm. And you'll have to hire people to do that. Yeah. And that's expensive. It is. What is? Isn't it just a truck that drives down once a week to those two spots? Or explain to our listeners how it's more complicated than that. It's you know it's you have to harvest what you're harvesting and process it as quickly as possible for freshness, for um, taste, taste for the nutrient value in it. Uh, it's you know it's the quicker you can turn it around and get it to you, the end person. Is, is definitely the goal. Mm. So, you know, the farmers that we deal with are at the farmer's market six days a week. Right. So they're harvesting six days a week, most of them, F- at least five. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, that's the other thing is most farms don't have great, amazing storage to... Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you that implies uh, a cold chain, like a very fancy, big walk-in refrigerator with uh, environmental yeah. controls in terms of moisture <clears throat> and temperature. I mean, Tens of that's thousands a very of big investment just in and of itself. Never yeah, mind mean, the people that are required to make that exactly. part now, of it. Are you held accountable to the same things that a regular farmer would, or is there a certain money? I mean... That's what I'm asking. How is this farm different from a farm we might hear about or see at the green market? And like, how is this going to save money for the restaurant, or is it going to be a break-even? Because it will even? eventually, or maybe not. Maybe you know, not. Maybe not. I mean, maybe. Dan Barber's farm, at, you know, Stone Barns, he buys the produce. He buys everything from the farm for the restaurant. Right. And with the Rockefeller money that gets yeah. automatically deposited into his bank account no, every with Monday the, morning. No, with the operating cost. Boy, you really have a heart on no, him, don't you? Just, I don't know. Rockefeller? <laughs> I'm like, wow, use that, that just as a got model, it everybody. Started. But it's been a good model, actually. And it's been a very uh, it's been a very inspiring model for yeah, you know Rockefeller. For I think the a huge number the of limit. people. 
Well, he has to buy everything out of the out of the farm, Patrick. That's a fact. And whatever. And that's so. probably what we'll have to do too. Is we'll have to sell it to the restaurants. I guess we won't be having Dan on as guest. <laughs> I need soon. another deposit. Hairball. <laughs> so um. I just I have no issue with Blue Hill, and I, I have no issue with this. I have an issue with that being seen as a replicable model for people in Cincinnati and well, fair in enough. Omaha. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you can only write so much articles when you have to stop writing articles about those things and finding some kid like, you know, in like I say, in Cincinnati suburbs that does something and starts something. Like, you know, um being given hundreds of thousands of dollars to start something, you know, it just has to be stated that that was the case. You sure. know, because if not well, absolutely yeah, but but I, mean, I think that I think something that comes out of it also is that, you know, you're showing a lot of people about agriculture who would never, ever see it. Absolutely. And you make that part of the story, which Dan is always talking about, the story of your food. And I think that that's a very important sales and marketing tool for any restaurant Mm -hmm. to say that we grew this particular product on our... And I noticed, like, for instance, when I was out in uh, Chicago a couple weeks ago on a pork crawl... Um, I took one of the menus back from a restaurant called The Publican by this mm-hmm. run by Paul Kahan, who's a great guy. And um, and every single source was listed yeah. on his menu. And I think that that's a very powerful tool in terms of educating your educating. consumers about the fact that there really is a connection between the earth and <laughs> what's on your plate. Oh, absolutely. And I think that more and more people want to know the story behind it. Now, what do you think about, um, you're coming from the West Coast to the East Coast, and one of the things that we talk about, um, one of our four themes, because we actually do have them, is what we call growing the movement, and the fact that like in the heartland of America, where most of our commodity or most of our agriculture takes place, uh, those are the areas that are, in my opinion, sort of, I don't want to say food desert, because that implies something different, but they're places that are sort of food challenged in the sense of... You know, outside of, say, Chicago or Minneapolis, um, it's very hard to find anything but iceberg lettuce in a restaurant, you know, that serves a salad. It's, you know, your livestock choices might be a little better, but I doubt it. Well, we um, were in Cincinnati, and we were at a restaurant, and what what were the vegetable sides? Potatoes? French fries and onion rings. Potatoes, french fries, onion rings. Was mm. this a high-end restaurant, or was it no, just like no, a... No, no, but I mean... Those are all the same. <laughs> That's the thing, is that... Even even at the high end restaurants, the it was better, uh-huh. but it would never touch the coasts. Hmm. I guess so. The question remains: like in you know, sort of experiments like yours, or even Stone uh, Barns, or you know, any of these other restaurants like the Egg that has its farm and George herb farm and out Egg, in George yeah, Weld. and herb farm down in out in Seattle and whatnot. These or even right here at Roberta's where they have the sure. Grange and we have the containers right on top of our containers. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I mean, it's amazing, but it's also like, how does that? How do we, you know, push that out into the mainstream outside of these big urban centers? And I just I, that's think the it takes challenge, time. You know, unfortunately, that's how it works with everything. Um, I think the. I think you will start seeing people. I mean, I know people in California who are talking about moving back to, you know, the Michigan area, places like mm-hmm. that, and starting a farm. So cool. I think you will start seeing more movement in that area where 
how many how many people can afford to buy a piece of land in New York and farm it? Yeah. Although I will say this, up by Utica, by Dan Purdy, it's a thousand dollars an acre. Yeah, but it's not that far. I mean, it doesn't seem like that much, but that's still a lot, I guess. But it's it's still far enough outside the city. Ten acres for ten thousand bucks—that's pretty cheap. And how how farmable is it? Four hours. I mean, I think it's farmable, but it's it's north. It's north. You have a very short growing season. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, listen, um, Jack, I think, is gesturing behind us. We're going to take a one-minute break. Then we're going to come back with uh, a a few more minutes with Scott. And then we're going to cut to a uh, session with Liza from from A16. Liza Shaw was uh, stopped in studio, and uh, we're going to play that. Then we're going to come back with Dan Dan Imhoff, who wrote a seminal book on industrial feedlots. Livestock farming, yeah. Yeah. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins. Our guest in studio today is Scott Boggs, who is running the farm for the Breslin Restaurant and is about to put his first crop into the ground. Um, So, Scott, we were uh, chit-chatting about um, sort of agricultural trends here in the United States. But, uh, Patrick, I know you wanted to talk about what's going on in Europe in terms of... Or South America or anywhere else. Yeah, right, any other country. Because as I was saying during the break, it's like we're acting like we invented this shit. (laughs) But we haven't. So, I mean, where is this? Is this a tradition brought over from somewhere else? I mean, you go all over Europe and you see it. if not actually having your own farm, I mean, every, having every a close chef personal, is, is going to yeah. the farmer's market, you know, almost mm-hmm. every day. When I and worked most in chefs a restaurant, in America are not. Oh no, 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 I not mean, outside of New York. No, I or you, DC or San Francisco. I, I where would, you have access. exactly San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York are the are the big ones. Yeah, and then on small levels, you got New Mexico and a few others. Uh, Santa yeah. Fe or something, but then really Santa Fe, most people that's it. don't. Taos maybe. Yeah, and if, if if there is a big city, they might have two or three restaurants that think that way, or four or six. Yeah, right. but there's not like eighty. No, I mean it's amazing. I go to the market at Union Square four days a week, and every chef is there. Yeah, and they really are there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they so are. this is a tradition in Europe. Absolutely. Uh, but I mean, of a farm, of a... Uh, there, you know, a, a lot of 
well-known restaurants have their own farms mm-hmm. or they have farmers growing directly for them, you know, growing specific, specific things. That, But also what people grow, I mean, I worked in a restaurant in France for a while and the owner of the restaurant would go to market twice a week at like four o'clock mm-hmm. and he in would- In the morning? Yeah. And he would come back because that's when the real, that's when the, you know, that's when the market happens in Paris. Yeah. And he would come back with like, you know, boxes full of game birds, which were then my job to pluck, pluck. and eviscerate, yeah. you know, and like haunch of venison that you had to skin and I mean, all that stuff. But then also he would bring in all the herbs and the produce and all of that stuff. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. like he had his vendors, he knew who they were, they knew. He, and so he could sort of have that relationship because he was there twice a week and really, mm-hmm. you know, had built yeah. up. And that's, I think, how it works in power. I mean, this was a medium-priced... Well, it's like that in London. Bistro, you know. It's definitely yeah. like that in London. It's like that in the south of France. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's... It really is like that everywhere, and that's and that's everywhere. I mean, even though this was in Paris, I think that whether you were in you know Aix en Provence or exactly. some tiny little town, the market happens twice or three times a week. Well, I think that. I mean, I hate saying this, but I think in the United States there's such a disconnect from food. Oh, totally. So well, we allowed prepared foods to take over in the fifties, right? Once we once we gave up control to Swanson's, <laughs> it was well, all I mean, over. <laughs> I, in culinary school, I had people who didn't know the difference between an artichoke and an avocado. And these people are were planning on becoming professional chefs. chefs. I mean That's funny. If if that doesn't say something, I mean it's think about Well it says a real lack of curiosity about what's out there at the well, very least. But think least. about, you know, people not realizing <laughs> that a, a a carrot is is grown in the ground. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh I mean, that it's a root. Vegetable. That it's a root. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think that I've heard, I've read about children, you know, not having any idea about, you know, what their food is. Where in Europe, it's it's a, you know, yeah, farms are closer, yeah. And people know the cheese that comes from their town. It's a source of pride. <laughs> like they would know if they had a sports team within a few miles, they would also know what cheeses are typical. Like For that's sure. just a regular. Yeah. Right. Part I mean, of common knowledge. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, now, are you from the West Coast, and are you moving to the country as well, and are you freaked out about moving to some uh, upstate <laughs> Patrick New is York? talking to our other silent guest here, to Katie. Scott's uh, wife. Scott's wife. And I just want to know, from, from your perspective, like, does it freak you out to move to upstate New York? Um, I moved to... You have to talk closer <laughs> to the microphone, darling. I moved to the country from New York to be with Scott, and it freaked me out. And I'm very glad to be back here, and I have no plans of moving to the country. We're permanently. Gonna, permanently. Permanently. Yeah. He's going to be part-time up there. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to split my time, because we're actually going to start a rooftop garden on the Ace Hotel. Oh, cool. So that's, Have you been to the Roberta's one in Long Island City? You know, every time I try to go out there, something happens, but I will make it Well, they have their really farmer's soon. market right out here, so we'll introduce you to Anastasia and Ben, and you can make your own appointment. I met Anastasia. Okay, um, good. Yeah, so I will be out there soon. Well, talking about the West Coast and talking about sustainability and foraging and sourcing and agriculture and distribution, we have Liza Uh, Shaw from A16 and she is really a great supporter of ours and she was not a convert towards uh, towards heritage because she was like hey listen pigs must be better in Northern California because they only come from uh, 50-60 miles away so that must translate to better taste 
and she kind of thought realized that it doesn't. What matters is the talent of the farmer and and this and that. And so, the breed of the pig, I would think. And the breed of the pig. So you know, it was real honor that that Heritage sells into A16, and she's really one of our biggest accounts, and that's such a fun restaurant. So it was really exciting when she came. Uh, they were doing some renovations, so she came to New York. They were yeah. they were a big uh, supporter of of the farm in, yeah. in Napa. But I think they were big supporters of taste. And yes. wherever the right taste was is where they would go. And that's really reassuring to know that there's still, you know, people that operate off of what their mouth off of and what tongue is tells actually them. happening. Yeah. yeah, not just off some label, you know, or something like that. So, um, Jack and Nat, are we ready to uh, cut to Liza? Okay, thanks, Scott, so much. I hope you'll stick around for our chat with Dan Imhoff. Definitely, yeah. yeah that's going to be, be great. Love After to have that. After a drink. And we're back on the main course. Our guest in studio right now is Liza Shaw from A16. She's here visiting from San Francisco. Welcome, hey, Liza. Liza. Thank you. It's good to be Thanks back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with Patrick Martins Hello. as my partner in crime. And we're broadcasting from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. So, Liza, what brings you to New York? Let's hear the story. Well, originally I'm here because a friend is getting married in Brooklyn on Saturday. Hooray. Um, I decided to extend my trip a little bit. It's been a couple of years since I've been here, and there's a lot of new restaurants, a lot of places a I lot. need to check out. And so, equal parts fun, research, reunion, you know, that's all right. that good stuff. Meeting people. Yeah. Um, so, at A16, you guys are, you've been open for quite a while. That's a, that's a really uh, happening concern out in San Francisco. It's We're, called Petrina's favorite Italian restaurant outside of Italy. Is that right? That, I didn't know that. Famous, that is one of our claims to fame. It's, it's a big. huge, huge honor. Um, yeah, we've been open six and a half years. Yeah, that's what I thought. And um, and tell us a little bit about the focus of the restaurant and and what makes it so special. Why does Carlo love it so much? Italian. Well, I think it's I think it's a, a degree of authenticity. You have a good time when you're there, which is really important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so the name A16 is the name of an autostrada that runs through southern Italy, and so you know our logo is the the sign, the road sign, essentially. And cool. so that really represents a a place, a sense of place where we draw our inspiration from. Um, so, you know, we have a very seasonally focused, locally inspired, you know, very, as much as possible, Southern Italian, soulful, rustic menu. They um, bring in whole pigs and break them down every single week. I believe you do that with cows as well. We don't, we, we don't have as much of a beef program as we do pork. Um, right now, we're getting whole pigs, a pig and a half every week, as well as whole lamb. Um, Great. The beef, the beef part of our menu is very small. How do you overcome the challenge of using all the cuts being as full as you are and number of turnovers a night and this and that it's really not a challenge at all i mean in the beginning when we first started getting whole pigs it was kind of a game i mean we literally looked at the pig and we were like what do we do let's cut it up and figure it out and and we we very much learned through experience um but we just like southern italian grandmothers just like anybody who you know has roots and 
you know, poverty, learn to use every single thing. And as a chef, it's important as well to save money and, you know, keep food Absolutely. costs down. Mm-hmm. So it's as much of a challenge as it is a reward in the end. And um, the most important part about it is learning experience. How did you guys learn how to do the butchering? Did you have a, did you have somebody on the staff who was good at that already? Who yeah, was able there, to there help were the a other few cooks? people early on who had, who had a good instinct. And uh-huh. from that point on, we've developed our own techniques. I, I don't think that any two people probably butcher exactly the same way. You know? Right. The English butchers butcher differently from the Italian butchers, no from question. the French, from the American. And I think that we developed our own style. And I think that you have to think about the end product and what you want out of the pig first and foremost. So, you know, some people butcher for the chops, some butcher for the belly, some butcher for the ribs. You know, we, we, we do a healthy balance of everything. And throughout the week, you know, we get our pigs on Wednesday. We start using the chops first. We move into the shoulder. We marinate the ribs. We make a porchetta. You know, I mean... We go through all the different parts of it throughout the week, and then whatever's left over becomes sausages, meatballs, salami, uh-huh. staff meal. Staff meal? No, well, we let those. We let everybody order off the menu. Actually, so oh, we don't really? do. We don't put up a family meal. How big a staff do you have? We have, I believe, a total, including managers, around fifty people. Wow, very successful restaurant. So, of course, the the biggest thing that we're excited about, um, you know, about you being here, is that we can bounce some ideas off you about the future of the main course. Because, of course, right. it's all about the main course. Liza. Absolutely. Which this we, was just a, a sort yeah. of short preface to kind of like make you lull you into a sense of security that we were going to talk about you. But actually, no, it's really going to be. About I'm happy well, to be part of the. Think tank. <laughs> if we've done a good job, you should be able to talk about yourself through the lens of these ideas. Okay. Because it should it. be universal. And, uh, you know, we are one of the top 20,000 listened to internet radio shows in Brooklyn. That's right. So That's we quite an honor. have quite a responsibility. Absolutely. On our There's nothing quite like us. So, um, all right. <laughs> well, so we developed, we developed a few themes. themes. Okay. Yes. And they are the following, and you can you can address any one of them in any order you choose, right? Yes. Yeah, so here are the four themes of main course from now until eternity, and also probably in many it's ways the theme of uh, many of the shows on the network. I would think so. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is agriculture and how that plays a role in um, you know sort of progressive agriculture and the new the new ideas around agriculture away Urban from commodity and mainstream commodity. Uh, food raising. So that's that's our first theme, and obviously because you guys buy whole pigs and whole lambs and have been doing so pretty much since the inception of the mm-hmm. restaurant, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So you were kind of a forerunner because that's a relatively new I mean certainly in New York that is I'd say a relatively new trend when now is that yeah, the way new, they but used it's also to very do it? old well it is but <laughs> it's, it's really not that new but I mean in terms to of to have the ability to have the restaurants storage, to have the manpower yeah, you know that's something yeah. that's special and sure. wanting to make that time and hire those people yeah because that is that's a big commitment I now think. did people buy a whole I mean first of all the restaurant in America is a phenomenon that probably got invented in like the 1910s or something I mean other than an inn or something I wonder if they used whole animals well, well I, think I mean it goes everybody's got to make a buck at some point right so you can either order small parts and use them as is buy mm-hmm. steaks you know whatever it's going to cost you a lot of money. Your profit margin is not going to be as big unless you're charging a lot of money, right? True. So you want to make the most out of what you can get as well as educating, A, the consumer, B, your team that you're working with, C, yourself. So, you know, it, as you said, it is a challenge to use the whole animal, but it's also immensely rewarding. Well, you're, what you said just now about educating the consumer kind of leads us into one of our other themes, which is philosophy about food or, food, you know, just sort of how people think about food and it's how... It's catch-all. Yeah. I mean, sort of educating the consumer means changing their attitude towards food because 
most consumers are used to getting their little piece of meat in a you know in a styrofoam tray with a piece of plastic over it so the idea that you would be buying an entire pig that's got to be kind of a new concept to people and so and also selling through um, cuts that are not familiar to people I think that's one of the biggest challenges probably in the restaurant world in terms of buying a whole animal like how do you tell somebody that they really need to be trying I don't know trotters. Uh, the trotters or or you know some obscure little piece of the shoulder or something like and now, that. is that your food philosophy to, to show how to use all the cuts? I mean, as a trendsetter, because of the sheer volume of people that come through your place, what is the food philosophy you're trying to come get well, across? Well, I think inadvertently we're educating people. I don't think we're coming out there and saying, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, this is what you're going to eat, and you're going to like it, you know? I think that, <laughs> you know, you introduce people slowly to new things, and you build a following. Um, and we are extremely blessed to have a huge list of regulars that come in all the time. And people come on Wednesdays during lunch to watch us butcher the pigs and uh-huh. you know they they see us making the chops they see us rolling the bellies for porchetta and they ask when can i come in to eat this and it's like all right let's see today's wednesday maybe on sunday we'll get into the porchetta and people come in and be like i was here on wednesday i saw you guys doing this i want to try it and the salumi program is another really exciting way to use everything um mm-hmm. You know, we do things like pork liver terrines with the livers that come in. We do um, trotter terrines. We do copa di testa with the head. We do all that kind of stuff. And we used to sell each of those items individually so people could order it. But we found people weren't so often ordering the pork liver terrine, the mm. copa di testa, the trotter terrine. And so we decided to do it strictly as a plate. So it's it's what we've got. There's four or five things on there, right. some pickles, some grassini, and that's what you're going to get. And that's what they get. That's smart. So they try something that they might not have otherwise tried. And before you know it, they're like asking for the pork liver terrine. Yeah. You know? Very interesting. Well, um, in terms of how you get these products, the third uh, category is marketing and distribution. So, I mean, I wanted to know if maybe you could educate um, our listeners on how a successful restaurant like yourself navigates the distribution world in Northern California. Because, I mean, that must be different than other places. You're not, like, in Kansas City. Absolutely. Um, so what is uh, that? How do you get all that product in week in and week out? As much as possible, we try to subscribe to the same sort of same sort of philosophy that you guys do. You know, supporting small farms, um, helping out the little guy. Overall, looking for the most delicious, best product. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's got to be good. It doesn't matter if you're supporting a small farmer if his product is crap. So, you know, being open for this long, we've been able to become very selective and very particular about the products that we get in. And, you know, we have people knocking on our door, you know, once or twice a week asking to bring in, you know, trying, bringing olive oil samples from Italy, bringing in new canned tomato products. And, you know, we get a lot of inspiration from the farmer's markets as well. And in California, it's unprecedented. I mean, the, the sheer volume and the variety and the quality of the produce out there, I think, is unmatched anywhere else in this country. So... That becomes kind of a social event every week, each market. You go there, you run into all the other chefs, you talk about who's got the best pairs, you walk down the aisles, and you, you, know, you really seek out the best stuff, and you form relationships with the farmers. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where the magic happens. You form a relationship with the farmer. You know, Marikita Farms is a farm that we've been doing business with since the day we opened, and they are kind of our bread and butter. We get about 60% of our produce from them, and really? we are also probably one of their biggest one of their biggest clients. Mm-hmm. So, and do you base your orders off what they have available? Absolutely. And base our menus take. off of what they and have. And are you able sure. to plan with them in advance? So, like, say, in the fall, yeah. you can say to them, hey, next year we want to have this. Yeah, I mean, we want to put this past, on the menu, and we've can you make that happen? to them from Italy, and they've planned uh-huh. them, and, and, and now they're part of their availability even for other restaurants, which is exciting. Um, but, you know, 
I'll call Andy up and be like, hey, when are you guys getting escarole in? What's the beat situation? How long are these carrots going to last? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you need to plan a little bit ahead. Of course. There, there are micro seasons within the seasons in California. So, you know, something, something will come in and be really incredible and you want to use it as much as possible. But then it's kind of fleeting. Two weeks later, it's not so good anymore and it's time to move on. So you have to change up your menu all the time according to what's you know if you're if you're if something is gone after two weeks and you have to replace it on the menu yeah i mean and you that's could, hard. You you could keep getting it is hard because yeah. you have to do the pricing and the exactly. yield and we that's lose yeah. more with this well i mean everything is i think the most delicious and usually the cheapest when it's in season and local of course you yeah. know you could keep getting artichokes year-round but they're going to be coming from mexico and they're not going to be as good and they're going to be on a truck for four days before they get to you, you know so right it makes more sense. I mean, pretty much all the things we're talking about really are very basic, sensical notions, you know? Yeah. Now, to go back to the distribution thing, now, each, say, Marikita Farms, okay, they're supplying 60% of your produce, so they are actually able to truck in. They're obviously a big enough operation that they can, they have trucks that are moving around from restaurant to restaurant. Yes. But for other farmers, you know, getting their products to market is often a big battle, especially when the gas prices spike up, like they did Absolutely. a couple of years ago, and somebody told me that it was like 45 cents on the dollar these guys were spending on making their deliveries. So, is there, I mean, here in the, in the Northeast, we're seeing more and more um, small distribution companies that are regionally focused and that are working with small farmers. Is that also happening out in California? It is happening. There are, you know, the, the big produce purveyors like Greenleaf and Veggie Works and Cook's, and Cook's Company, they are bringing in small farmers as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, the farms will sell to the company, the company will sell to us. And, right. you know, we we supplement our farm deliveries with one of these larger produce companies. You know, we get all, all organic local through them as well. Um there's still something to be said for picking it up at the market, holding it right there, talking to the farmer. And, you know, the farmer's markets are so great because it's a gathering place. And a lot yeah. of times the really small farms will will carpool with other really small farms that are near them to get to the markets. Right. And, you know, there's a market at least every day of the week and mm-hmm. in different parts of the Bay Area. So, you know, the South Bay market people come to a certain market. The North Bay market people come to another market. And, well, my, know, whole can, can is, uh, my, my whole thing is, my whole thing in answer to Katie's question is I always, I, I view the, the, the places with the richest infrastructure of season, of farms, of understanding, mm-hmm. of sophistication to appreciate these things end up inadvertently becoming the equivalent of like Republicans in politics because they have so much. There is so much abundance. And often it is people in those states that graduate to be in, in high up positions that it uh, they don't necessarily understand what it's like in like Toledo. Absolutely. Or I, I can't City. pretend to know what it's like to try to. Put together Start a menu something in from City, scratch. You know? So right. now I ask you this, which is our final of the four categories: growing the movement. I mean, you do what's great, but in terms of anything, whatever is important, the schools or, or, or new projects or people nationally or good fast food chains or more restaurants like A16. Where do you see this movement in in its uh, trajectory or life? And how do you see it? How do you how do you think it's, it would be best to spread it into those yeah. more interior states where to the unconverted? There's less, you know, there's less uh, opportunity. availability, opportunity, and even education. I think at the grassroots level. I mean, I think that you know, word of mouth, education, people banding together with a common cause, and you know, spreading the word about you know maybe organic free-range natural beef is a tiny bit more expensive but you should have to pay for good food Mm -hmm. and teaching people that you know the cheaper faster better cheaper faster way isn't always better right i think that um you know 
there are a lot of educational programs out there. There's a lot of people who are doing outreach to schools. And I think that starting at the elementary school level with the school cafeterias, I think, is something that's really remarkable. Um, I can't say that I'm personally involved in that yet. It's something that I'm interested in. But I think that, you know, starting young and starting with families, people raising their kids and mm-hmm. knowing about the, the value of good quality, you know, food with a point of view, food with a conscience. Food with a conscience. What do you think about teaching people how to cook? What do you think about having people... This is my argument with Patrick almost every week. Is like I'm always like people like eating out. People want to eat out, says Patrick. Even people should McDonald's. be able to go to Momofuku Sambar and buy a pork bun for three dollars. <laughs> I would love to be able to do that every day. But you know, like you said, I mean, people in the Midwest in small towns don't have that a desire or b um, luxury of it's going not out to eat all the time. So it's not available. So, so you have to cook. I mean everybody has go, to eat. They go to fast food four or five times a That's week. That's what I mean. I guess I guess my point is is more like how do we encourage people to do some cooking at home rather than relying on fast food outlets. I say I say let's get a, a sustainable fast food franchise to go into eighty cities. Like Chipotle. I mean, like in and out. I think they're awesome. Yeah. Who doesn't like that place? Or Five Guys, right? You know, I think, that, I think that these days, as much so. as much as we can as we can hate on it, I think that you know the Food Network, the Cooking Channel, all those things are have become a huge influence on the home cook. And I think that people are seeing you sure. know quick, fast, easy, cheap meals that you can make at home in thirty minutes or less. Blah blah blah. And they're like, wait a second, I can do that. I can watch that person on TV. She looks like me. I can make that food. And mm-hmm. I think that honestly, people are turning towards that more. Awesome. Especially in like recession years, you know, when people don't have a whole lot of money to spend out, they want to cook at home. So much cheaper. Well, tell us a little bit about the future. Any uh, menu changes or definitely? Some? Well, right any now, any plans to expand? Are you going to open another restaurant? It's possible. Ah. She's coming to. Uh, I heard open a uh, a restaurant right on the Bowery or something like that. Not likely. No? Not in New York. You no, like I'm, San I'm a West Coast gal. Okay. But uh, right now we have a restaurant in Tokyo. Um, so there's an A16 in Tokyo, and we just celebrated our one-year anniversary there, which is really, really exciting. We are doing uh, a cook exchange every so often there, so we'll send someone from our restaurant there for a couple weeks and vice versa, which is inspiring and rewarding. And What a great know, experience for the lucky chef. It's great for everybody because that, yeah. otherwise I'd be going over there six, seven, eight times a year. And, and while it's awesome, I don't have time, and it's, it's yeah. great to give someone mm-hmm. else that opportunity. So... That's a big. That's a really big step that we made last year, cool. and we're really we've been one year in. We're doing really well. The partner company that we're working with over there is doing great. Um, we're closed right now for renovations. We are expanding our dining room and cleaning up the operation a bit. Um, so yeah, we've been closed for three weeks and How we're going to reopen. Uh, right seats, now, I mean. we have a hundred seats. We're adding eight to ten. Okay. So it's it sounds like a small amount, but throughout a year it can. Oh, that's ten percent increase. That's uh, legit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Liza. Thank you for your sponsorship, for your continued support of Small Family Farms, and for taking the time uh, to come in. Yeah, and, it was uh, a pleasure to us. meet you, Liza. Absolutely. Come back Thanks again soon. Me. Hey, and we'll see you Saturday. Well, we are back uh, on the main course. We're sponsored by Fairway Market, like no other market. We're broadcasting from uh, 261 Moore Street, Roberta's This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. And we have uh, Scott Boggs uh, and his lovely wife in the uh, studio. And now we have Dan Imhoff uh, calling in from uh, somewhere in the 707 area code. Dan, are you with us? Yeah, it's nice to be here. Good morning. 
Oh, Thanks good morning. so much for joining us. Sorry we're a little late. Well, um, October 1st, a seminal book for all farm animals in America, um, the book CAFO, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories, um, has just been published. And uh, tell us a little bit about how this book came about, Dan. Well, the book is actually uh, one of a series of books that have been produced by the Foundation for Deep Ecology, um, often on big mega mega technologies and and economic models of resource extraction, such as clear cut, uh, fatal harvest, and uh, most recently a book called Plundering Appalachia. And CAFO was really an attempt in, in a very graphic style, as is as is in keeping with these books, um, to pull back. The walls and the and and the doors of these windowless animal factories, where increasing amounts of our meat and poultry and eggs and dairy products are produced. Wow, it is like a real muckraking book. Back, you know, like the great muckrakers of the beginning of the twentieth century. How did you get these pictures? I mean, you know, I know they yeah, took you know, advantage I, of technology, but yeah, well. Um, first of all, from the muckraking point of view, I, I, um, there are 34 essays total in the reader, um, and I have to say that we really went to a very broad range of voices in trying to describe what is happening with the industrialization of animals for food. And so on the one hand, you have Matthew Scully, who was a, a speechwriter for Sarah Palin and, and President George Bush. And then you have someone from Meat and Poultry magazine. And on a, on a whole other perspective, you've got Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser, two of the great investigative food journalists today. Now, when we were, when we were looking at the photographs, um, we had at one time over 6,000 photographs that we were that we were working through but the, the challenge is that it's very difficult increasingly difficult to get access to these animal factories so how um, did you and so you know a majority of the photographs we purchased from associated press and corbis and reuters and alamy and all kinds of news and photo agencies and you might have seen these photos you know buried in the in news coverage over the last ten years um, and then, you know, then you have numerous individuals and organizations to whom, you know, fighting CAFOs is what they get up and, and they do every morning because the CAFOs are literally right in their backyards and they have no choice but to document and, and to try to fight back. Actually, one of the most interesting um uh, essays in the book I thought was Kendall Thu's uh, essay CAFOs are in everyone's backyard and it talked a lot about um, sort of how uh, these big uh, industrial um, uh, lobbies are squelching essentially free speech by limiting access to photography and by uh, passing legislation that protects uh, industrial Campus. agriculture yeah, to the point where people can't speak out against them uh, without incurring the potential of lawsuits. Do you want well, really to comment you on that? that because I think that's something that people don't think about when they, I mean, everybody knows that it's really bad, but it's not just bad because it's inhumane and it's gross. It's bad because it actually tramples on civil liberties. So let's, let's chat about that for a sec. 
Well, no, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's absolutely one of my favorite pieces in the book because, you know, we do hear a lot about the health impacts, but not quite enough about the health impacts of the CAFO industry. Um, we hear a lot about waste and manure, but, you know, these, these CAFO industries are often geographically concentrated mm-hmm. in very poor rural areas. And so we don't hear enough about that as well. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it came to, to light in the late 1990s when Oprah Winfrey um, made a comment on one of her shows about not wanting to ever eat a hamburger again. And then she was sued by the Texas Cattlemen Association for libel. And, and she luckily had the legal wherewithal to win that suit. And she, she did have the facts on her side. But it, it definitely brought up a, um, a very important aspect of any big industry, you know, and, and anything, any economic sector that's, that's completely dominated by a big industry is, you know, they're going to try to get the law and the regulations on their side, even if they're not proven to be constitutional. So, you know, in the United States, it's illegal to take a photograph in three states of a CAFO without permission of the owner. Right. In 13 states, it's illegal to disparage agricultural activities. Well, you know, there's some good, there, there's some sound reasons behind being sure of your claims, right, and not hurting an industry because in the case of, you know, meat exports, there are always billions of dollars at stake. Absolutely. But it's quite another to take away a community's uh, right or ability to defend themselves and to decide that they don't want to have a CAFO installed in their community. And, and the, the big problem there is, is that when, CAFO, when a community, in fact, does ultimately accept a CAFO or a slaughterhouse, what they soon find is there's not just one, they're not isolated, there's more and more. And pretty soon their, their communities are under siege, their water tables are at risk of being polluted, the air can, you know, unpredictably just stink in, in, a, um, in a way that, you know, is just intolerable. Their property values decline and their community goes into, into a tailspin. It, it's, it's very hard to bring your community back around once, it, once it's been degraded to, to a massive extent. So um, I wanted to ask, how much of America's meat, poultry, and eggs and dairy are produced in CAFOs? Well, you know, I, I've, I've, it's hard to quantify, but I would say, you know, the top 5% of, of the big livestock corporations in the U.S. Um, produce 50% of, of all the, the, the animal products. So uh, what, what you find is, is um, the bigger getting bigger, as there's n- absolutely no margin in any of these products, in these commodities anymore, um, the bigger getting bigger just to survive on, you know, very, very small margins. The small are trying to find their own diversified route. And, you know, one of the biggest, biggest shames of it all is that huge CAFO operators in the name of the farmers flood, they flood the market with cheap commodities, and, and it just makes it hard 
for, for the real hard-working independent farmer um, that, that's trying to make it because the price is, is just always depressed. Well, let me ask you, talking about price, one of the biggest parts of this station is that fast food is not cheaper. We're not including the environmental and the, the social and all those things, which really throw it over the top, but just pure apples to apples. Is it more expensive or, I mean, is it that much cheaper, I should ask, to produce foods and, and li- raise livestock in such industrial places? Well, I think it's a complete miss. Um, it's very hard, you know, and, and cheap is really in the eyes of the accountant. You know, what are they, what are they counting and what are they emitting? And, and basically industrial animal food production is based on trying to foist as many costs as they can onto the public. And, and that can be, you know, huge problems from waste that are, that are never even, you know, taken care of. Well, it's sort or, of like the energy, <clears throat> the energy industry, which, you know, doesn't pay for the pollution that it causes. It's kind of the same thing. But, oh, it's totally the same thing. But, on, but beyond that, there's also the... Um, oh, God, no, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, but even well, before the... Health. Let's, let's look at the health impacts. Yeah. Because I, I, do, I think that, you know, when... when listen... First of all, I would never say that I don't that I want people to stop eating animal products. That is completely their decision. And Are I would you never a vegetarian? Say, um, actually, I produce and I, I I raise small livestock for my family. I'm I'm way more of a conscious omnivore, and I have been for you know thirty some years since I read Diet for a Small Planet as a sophomore in college but I I have a small backyard flock of chickens for eggs I raise about uh, one meat bird per week for my family I raise a few hogs now and then for myself and my neighbors in my rural area and um, you know I I'm just a person that really loves to grow healthful plants and animals for the table um, however, you know, w- when we talk about these issues, I-, I always have to come back to health because I, I feel like health is something that we, um, we can all agree on, right? And, and, but all, health can also be defined in many ways. If we just get down to physical health and the way we're feeding ourselves right now, you know, two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese, and the majority of the saturated fats in their diet, and, and we're increasing uh, our consumption of animal food pro- products over the last 30 to 40 years, we've increased it by 50%. The majority of our saturated fats are coming from animal food products. Numerous studies link those high rates of saturated fats to grain-fed, industrial-raised animals. And even the USDA is coming out with their nutrition guidelines. And what are they suggesting? They're suggesting that we eat meat and, and dairy and eggs in moderation and increase our intake of fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, and whole grains. So, you know, as, as the 11-year-old boy recently said on, on the um, TEDx Next Generation um, video, you know, pay your farmer or pay the hospital. And that, that's one of the equations in this cheap food 
that is really not brought up that we're paying 150 billion dollars plus every year just for the costs of overweight, obesity, and and nutritional diseases. So what do you say to the CAFO owner who says that up until 50 years ago, all mankind was on the brink of starvation, and now they actually have successfully found a way to feed the world 100% of the time? Well, feed the world maybe not, but feed America, for instance. Well, I would say, you know, again, it's kind of like, all right, so we've spent the last 50 years doing it this way, but there are some serious, serious downsides to this type of food production. Should we not take a very careful look and readjust? Um, and, I mean, I, I truly believe, and as we see China, uh, Eastern Europe, numerous other countries beginning to adapt this type of, of animal food production, I, I mean, I think the evidence is clear. We, we can't keep going this direction. Why? They're feeding the world. I mean, people get sick when they're 70 years old if they abuse it. But I'm just playing devil's advocate here because, you know, technically I think this network and me certainly and Katie agree with you. But why? Well, I think I, and can simple. your way it's, feed it's really the world? Simple. Yeah, I mean, how um, how would you change how would you change the model while still feeding while still feeding and creating the gross million domestic product? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I would say first of all, it has to be healthful. Right, so health has to be the bottom line, mm-hmm. and our diet is clearly out of balance. And what you know, I think you have to let's let's take it as a fifty-year perspective. There, there are very few magic wands to be waved. One of the first magic wands to be waved would be to adapt some real um, strict antibiotic legislation. Let's say so. So instead of you know, uh, typically just feeding every day in small doses antibiotics as a form of life support, which allows these numbers to be so high, and it actually allows the grain-fed fattening process, we would, you know, really use antibiotics as a tool, just as we do in human medicine, and that would immediately get to the to the issue of scale. The broader discussion over time. And I think it's, it's only a matter of time before waste, weather, fuel, and water, and water issues begin to seriously limit our ability to use our, most of our land to grow grain, to feed animals in confinement, and then ship them around the world. And so, you know, it, it's a discussion that has to begin to happen. But, you know, right now, we're 2010. There are 800 million hungry people in the world and a billion people who are obese or overweight. So how is this, how is this working out? Well, That's a good point. <laughs> clearly not so well. But I guess, you know, I still go back to the idea of, I mean, I read a lot of the trade blogs and uh, trade papers about the meat industry. I'm a bit of a meat geek myself. And... Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that a lot of these uh, produce, I mean, let's, you know, confined area feeding operations are just one step in the overall process of raising livestock industrially. So typically, an animal starts out working with, you know, is being raised by a smaller or medium-sized independent farmer, right, who's under contract, or actually not well, independent, think, who's I under think contract. I probably in the beef industry, that's, that's the rare exception. 
that's right. where it's that they're independent. No, they're under contract. Yeah. I mean, but 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 when you look at the poultry industry and the hog industry, mm-hmm. their yeah, hatcheries, their that's nurseries, their breeding facilities yeah. are completely integrated. They basically own the animals from start to finish, except on that rare occasion during the growth process where they contract out the growing, so that therefore the waste is usually not their liability yeah. or the downer animals. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it's a tough situation um, in, the, in the beef industry because I, I know, I'm sure there are, the, you know, there are millions of, um, not millions, but let's say tens of thousands of small producers who are raising lovingly their animals, you know, in these cow-calf operations for right. the first five to seven months of their lives. And then, um, but, but ultimately, what happens to these animals? You know, they, they, they're sent off to, to feedlots, huge yeah. feedlots, and, and ultimately the quality of life goes downhill. And the only way to keep participating in that is, is some sort of sense of denial. But, but it's, no, it's no different than the denial that we're all living in, and which is that, you know, we, this is the only way there is, and we should just, you know, take it and buck up because otherwise we're going to starve well, well we I, only, I think there's a lot of yeah. people who would say that i mean certainly you know i mean i'm not one of them but i mean i think that what i'm curious about is is what do you see as the bridge between the two extremes you know the one extreme being you know going back to rural america from 100 years ago and the opposite extreme being the system that we have in place now heritage how do we, foods that's how it. do we <laughs> The more yeah. we grow, well, you know, USA, maybe, it's the way. maybe you're part of the solution. I, oh, you know, I, I think I am so. a lot yeah, more so, than. So I, I think. Listen, I, there. Um, in a world of extremes, there are all kinds of gray dots, right? And I, I believe that um, we've got to increase the number of gray dots and begin to solve these issues. As much as we can locally. It's um, all about sales. That's you know, it. There, sales. There, 100%. There, there have been some good proposals, and one of my favorite, and I, I do mention this in, in my essay, is um, the idea of a 50-year farm bill that begins the transition with economic incentives from an annual-based, feed-based agriculture toward a perennial-based pasture-based agriculture with animal food products. And, and if we look 50 years out onto the horizon and we say, you know, look, 80% of our ag right now is, is dedicated toward growing feed uh, and, and supporting this type of food production, and if we can, you know, begin to reverse that number and increase the amount of deep-rooted perennial pasture-based operations on the landscape, it's going to be better for many, many different things from, from water filtration and habitat to, you know, healthy animals and putting small independent operators on the land and using the land, um, you know, accordingly. Well, Dan, we have a, a few minutes left. I want to do a uh, quick fire moment where I'm going to mention some of the essays and you give us your some of your headline kind of like, you know, 30 second or less answer of why you feel these essays were important in to the world and, and to this book. So we'll start with the, the king of them all, um, Wendell Berry. Well, Wendell just has the most 
uh, beautiful argument for um, the need for a return to animal husbandry rather than industrial animal science that, te- that really treats animals like economic production units. Eric Schlosser. Well, Eric Schlosser, you know, he made the famous, famous dictum, you know, there's a reason that we're, we're getting sick from eating hamburgers. There's shit in the meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Fred Kirshenman. But Kirshenman, you know, he's written uh, introductions to numerous of my books. I, I consider her, him, you know, uh, the real elder statesman of our sustainable agricultural movement. And his piece came from the conclusion of the Pew uh, report on industrial animal food production. And uh, I consider it just a, a brilliant gem of a work. Michael Pollan? Well, Michael Pollan, you know, I mean, we all live in his shadow if we're, if we're covering um, food journalism today. And um, I think Power Steer was really, you know, the essay that blew the doors down on this whole, uh, it really began to um, bring broad awareness to uh, both the challenges of grain-fattened foods and, and, and all that it entails and the promise of, of pasture-based alternatives. Well, I'll tell you, I once wrote an op-ed for the Times, and that op-ed was going straight for The Onion or some magazine like that until Michael Pollan edited it for me. And then it got immediately published as is. So I'm a big uh, a big fan of Michael, and I love what a, a teacher he is and remains. Yeah. He's always yeah. teaching people. He'll give you 10 minutes no matter who you are or where you're from, and those 10 minutes, you know, end up like launching careers. Um, what about uh, just a couple more, Matthew Scully? Well, Matthew Scully, you know, if you haven't read Dominion, I highly encourage it because Matthew really has a way of um, elucidating the ethical issues in, um, in animal food production, mainly, you know, we wouldn't treat our pets this way. How can we turn a blind eye to how the food animals we depend on are treated? And uh, last one, I don't know this person, Winona Howder. Winona Howder, she is the, um, the director of Food and Water Watch, and um, CAFOs are one of their big issues around the country. And um, in this case, Winona is really talking about irradiation, which is just one more kind of techno fix to an industry that's gone wrong. You know, if it's unhealthy, all we have to do is zap it with nuclear irradiation, and then, and then we'll be healthy again. Thank God for nuclear radiation. So, yeah. uh, just and uh, tell us, um, this has been great to have you on. I, I admire you for producing such a massive book. This book is literally weighs like twenty pounds. It's filled with pictures. I mean, it is a true coffee table book. The essays are excellent. To bring attention to this issue is, uh, you know, it, super critical. I call it my monster piece. Um, yeah. But uh, how do people see it at at bookstores on a website? I mean, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's available wherever books are sold. I, I, you know, or at least it's you can order it, Um, and it's just beginning to get out there. You know, my ideal, I think, resting place for a book like this. I put a lot of my life into it, so I think a lot about it. Is a library. A library is all in country in 
communities all over the country where someone might hear something about it. They might hear, hey, you got to look at this thing. And, and at a library, you can really stretch out and, and carefully take a look for yourself and, and you know, make, make some of your own decisions about what, what these issues make you feel or not feel. And for people who just want to read the essays, there's also a reader version that has no pictures and, you know, it's easily portable and um, it actually has four extra essays in it. So I'm pretty happy with that as well. Well, congratulations, Daniel. It's been years in the making and uh, we hope to uh, have you in studio next time you're in uh, Bushwick. Where's Bushwick? In Brooklyn. It's in Brooklyn. <laughs> okay. It's well, on the I'll, L you know, train. L I'll to Morgan. I'll put it on my list. Fantastic. Yeah, are you doing a book tour? Yeah, it's going it, to, you know, it's kind of slow in, in, in evolving, but I would say once the elections are through in right. November, Very smart. Um, then probably, you know, late, late November, December, January, I'll start um, getting around. Well, very well, good. I hope well, you'll come to New York. Yeah, good luck to you. I hope you get the word out, and certainly we at the network and at Heritage Foods will, you know, try to spread the word to the best of our ability. Thank you so much for your time and questions. Sure. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be Bye-bye. back in thirty seconds. So, um, is this inappropriate to make a fast food joke right now? Please, so feel free. So, women with big knockers work at Hooters. Yeah. Where do women with one leg work? Uh, I don't know. One-eyed Jack. IHOP. Oh, oh, gross! <laughs> that was disgusting. That's a clean joke. And you should have vetted it with me before we did this on the air. No really. one's listening, especially Jack, at 126. you're editing that one out. So that was Daniel Imhoff, who is the editor of a CAFO Reader, um, which is published published by, uh, I think it's called Watershed Media. It's uh, the CAFO Reader, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories. It was a great, really a very eloquent segment and a wonderful book full of essays um, all about why our industrialized uh, food system is broken. And our guest, our other guest in studio today has been Scott Boggs. Yeah, the Breslin, a real trooper. Who's our farmer, yeah, who sat through that without uttering a syllable. But <laughs> no, it was now really you can comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Dan, you right? Think? Through your... You know, I don't know if we've crossed paths or not, but okay. we definitely lived in the same area. I'm sure I've met him somewhere. Yeah, probably. Um, so what did you think of the segment? I thought it was great. I mean, I think... I think it's it's tough when people don't realize where their food is coming from. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a great book. I um, wish you had been able to answer my question better about what's the alternative. Right. Though. Well, I mean. I mean, that's well, really what you, the discussion is. I'll tell you is. what I mean, the alternative is. We secretly know it, and we don't what? need anyone. What is it? Sales. 
sales for the alternative. Yeah. That's it. It's all sales. And you can then say, oh, but, and with, and in addition, it's sales. If you can sell it, which implies a whole world of marketing and distribution, if you can sell it. By the way, you know, Heritage did not exist until we got a call from Mark Ladner, who, by the way, congratulations to him for his four-star review. Amazing. First ever Italian restaurant since 1974. He was like, we will buy all the your pork shoulders at Lupa. And then if you can survive that, Del Posto. That's what launched us to the slaughterhouse, to the farm, you know, uh-huh. to the trucker, all that. It was the sale. It wasn't some great idea. Because right. there are a million of great ideas. Because money talks. And sales talk. So you yeah. want to, you know, mm-hmm. what he was talking about, gray dots, that's a business. Yeah. It's a for-profit Well, and then we have the whole stuff. Dan Purdy situation in upstate New York, which we hope will be replicated across the country, I mean, yeah. since Dan is paving the way. That's about And then sales. the other thing I wanted to say was, I think you should, um, you know, this morning when you and I were talking before the show um, about last night's dinner with uh, our friend and colleague Andrea and his lovely girlfriend, and, mm-hmm. and we did a photo shoot for Heritage Foods USA mm-hmm. in my house, and... And, um, you know, after we made the food we and shot it with the f- camera, we ate it. And, you know, I just, again and again, I just have to say, it's like, it's just so much better. It's mm-hmm. just so much better. And you told me that Fabrizio from Boulou mm-hmm. had... Well, I think a bunch of the chefs, called I mean, you Mario back and, said, and Mark, if it didn't taste better, they would not care. Yeah, They're because not they've got, to lose money. they have a margin. I mean, they have to meet their margins. They've got investors. Yeah. You know, they have to they have to meet a uh, a budget. And um, it's a good challenge for you too, because obviously, you know, you're going to be producing the greatest tasting fruits and vegetables and herbs, or else it ain't worth it. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a big effort to do something that's not as good as other people's products i mean what's the point yeah and do you um taste i mean do you always get worried when that tasting panel uh, like eats the salad that you have helped grow and and you're hoping it's the best one ever sure i mean i i can i can grow something to my my taste and my Mm -hmm. specifications but really it's it's all about either it's it's all about the chefs but really what it's all about is is the end the end is people the that, person who's, yeah. who's paying 27 dollars a plate for that right. entree absolutely yeah. well or this has been a great show it's been we have some great shows coming up we have marion nestle dr marion nestle we have joan die gussow that's actually one show but before that uh next week we have um uh helene york who is going to be talking to us from bon appetit uh food service company mm-hmm. which is a, a an outfit that's kind of like Restaurant Associates or Marriott. They ca- mm-hmm. they basically cater to large institutions, um, that's where universities. A can yeah, and Bon Appetit has a stellar reputation in the industry, and they were a real leader in terms of of getting um, of bringing in local produce and and following a seasonal menu and so forth. I mean, really groundbreaking in that sense. Yeah, we're big into that, and we're really honored as Heritage Foods. We're selling into Radford University, Virginia Tech. Uh, James Madison University, Emory. So it's nice to see these first forays into yeah. experiments yeah. by these people. And granted, we might only be doing two or three meals, but across the university campus, that you know has a real effect in and of itself. So talking about taste, uh, Steve Pope is going to do his weekly segment on Heritage Poultry. Where would this network be 
without Steve and his Absolutely. Heritage Poultry segment. And where would the network be without our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener? Oh, Thanks, guys. Thanks for putting and up with my crazy texts at three in the morning. Are, and our sponsors, like Fairway Market, like no other market. And thanks so much, Scott Boggs, for coming in and joining us. Thanks, Katie, for sitting quietly in the corner there. <laughs> and uh, well, she's talked a little bit. And also, check out our website. We have pictures from last week's party, Which and they're awesome. very fun. And we have a whole new set of pictures coming up. So keep checking the website and doing searches for your favorite words and themes in the sustainable world. See you next week. Bye. Hi, this is Chef Steve with Heritage Food as uh, Network. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about well, do you know what you're eating? Uh, here at Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch, we have what we call traceability. And what that means is that our chickens and turkeys, we can trace all the way back to the egg source itself, where that bird came from. And that's that we feel is a very important thing. You know, a lot of times we really don't know what we're eating. And, and, and if you've looked at the later newscast, things that we're seeing is that a lot of things that we're eating are questionable, and there's a lot of problems that are coming from that. With uh, knowing its source, knowing its quality, its genetic background, you know that you're eating the, the food that you've been told that you're eating, the quality of food itself. Now, there are really a lot of truly concerned consumers out there right now who are saying, you know, I want to know what's in, in the product that I am consuming. Uh, things have changed. Things have changed a lot. One of the things I remember growing up as a kid is, is that uh, my grandparents and parents used to have a couple of eggs every morning for breakfast. They did not have cholesterol problems. Could it have been that the, the eggs that they were eating were raised as they should be raised with natural sources for food rather than uh, genetically altered or, or any of the corn and, and food products that they are receiving today that just might raise that cholesterol base? So there's a, there's a, there's a reason why they, that we look at that is, is that we're trying to bring people back to the reality of good food creates good health. And I think this has been part of the heritage food people for some time. It certainly is one of our concerns here at Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Another thing that we look at is, is buying fresh and buying local. And why do we want to do that? Well, again, you do know where your source of food is, but there are other things that happen along the way that are to your benefit. The one big thing that we look at is that food that you uh, eat that is grown in your local area has a health factor to it that is only indigenous maybe to that area. One of the good examples is the histamines. We see people with a lot of hay fever and uh, pollen problems and seasonal issues. Well, there is a link tied to the food you eat to help build up those immunities towards uh, the particular uh, problems of, of uh, food that might be in your areas and, and the uh, pollen and things of that nature, you build up some kind of resistance that way so that you're not, um, not having as much problem with your, with your health issues. And it's been known for that for some years that buying fresh and buying local provides you with that. That's, that's a real important thing to consider when you're eating your foods and when you tie that into the quality of what you're eating. You know, because of our traceability, we can tell you at any time where that bird came from, what its source, where it was grown, all of that. And if you know that from your present uh, 
purchaser or who you purchase your product from at this time, then you're, you're on the right tracks. But also knowing that its quality is there. Quality is important along with just having the product. Is it, is it meeting the standards of what we, we like to produce and to get the best hardiness out of the product? That is something that you see happening across the entire United States. People are buying local. They are buying uh, from reliable sources. If they're not able to obtain it locally, they research and find what is the best source for that particular product, whether it's uh, beef, pork, poultry, or even your general garden uh, vegetables. A couple of new restaurants that are opening, and they are using just that theme. Canaan Castle, which is by, uh, owned by Renee Kelly in Kansas City, is cooking with the seasons, and I think that's the next step. We uh, understand that if there are certain foods within a certain season and you can eat those foods and be healthy, then you're, you're, uh, each step of the season you're eating the food that would be naturally coming to you at that time of the year. Uh, she has worked very hard at making sure she secures her foods and um, making sure that they get only the seasonal foods that are offered. Another company that's doing that out of Deposit New York is I Am Butterfields, and this is owned by George Merrick. His restaurant is uh, soon opening using the same thematic, using local foods and creating a lot of um, quality foods for the season. And I think that that's, uh, that's a great way of doing it, a great way of getting people used to eating seasonal foods and, and enjoying each season and whatever bounty it brings to you as a consumer. I uh, want to talk just a little bit about the uh, processes of different foods in this time of the year. We get uh, into that cooler weather. I know that it was in its 50s here, and it was certainly in New York area much colder. So we know that the leaves are turning and the season changes enough for us to want to start cooking maybe a little bit more than we did during the summer. I have a recipe that I really enjoy using. It's just a simple uh, savory chicken, and it uh, comes with fried polenta, and it will be on my website if you want to go to that. But I'd give you a little bit of a rundown for the taste of it so that you can see what we're working with. You need a, about a three- to four-pound heritage chicken. That would be a Cornish chicken if you have that available. And the following is your, your uh, first eight recipe ingredients. You take about eight ounces of sour cream, two tablespoons of lemon juice, some Worcestershire sauce, uh, celery salt. You take some uh, paprika and also regular salt, maybe a little pepper, and then some standard poultry seasonings. And you mix all that together and put it with the uh, dry bread crumbs that you would add to the chicken and coat it very good. And what you're going to do is let it stand overnight and uh, let it marinate into the, each one of those pieces. Uh, after you do that, you re-bread crumb, your breadcrumbs again, paste it in an oil spray deep baking dish in a single layer, and then you melt some butter and shortening together, drizzle it over that chicken, and you're going to bake it for 30 minutes per pound. And that is a 350-degrees oven. Uh, you'll need to make sure that it's covered during that time, and then the last 15 minutes you want to uncover. The, the, the only problem that we've had with that is that it fills the house with such a great smell, you have neighbors coming over wondering what you're cooking and waiting for it to be done. It's truly a great dish, especially if you use fried polenta with it and take some of those pan drippings and put them over the uh, polenta before you serve it. You will find people uh, 
gravitating to your house and, and asking what is that wonderful smell, and you're the one who's created it using the Good Shepherd recipe for savory chicken. This is Chef Steve, and we will plan to see you next week and talk again a little bit more about what's happening with the fall at, uh, activities. Until then, I wish you my best. <laughs>